to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today, really excited to be joined by two guests from the IMF, Dahlia Emmal, who is a research officer for the IMF, and also Divya Kirti, who's an economist at the IMF. We will be talking today about the limits to private climate change mitigation. So welcome to the show, Dahlia and Divya. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Lev, for having us on. Really my pleasure. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. So you wrote a paper that I read recently on Vox EU entitled Limits to Private Climate Change Mitigation. And you start your paper by saying, um, I'm reading now, as climate change looms ever larger, economists have coalesced around the need for climate policy centering around Bogovian taxes, cushioned by transfers to vulnerable households. And then you go on to say, However, carbon taxes and related policies face deep political constraints. So let's start there. What are Pigovian taxes? Yeah, so this is is a a great question. So to to understand what Pigovian taxes are and and to kind of talk through what they do, it's important to first talk about externalities. So externalities are this concept that every economic student encounters relatively early on. Right? So what, what are externalities? These are the effects of choices or actions that people take on people or entities other than the decision maker that's making them. So impact on someone else other than who's making the choice. And you know, we're, we're often particularly concerned about externalities where the impact on others is negative and really not very easy for a decision maker to see or understand. So you know, the classic kind of example that you might see in an economics textbook is you know, perhaps a factory that's dumping toxic waste in a river and then poisoning the water supply downstream, maybe in a different region, right? So really making life difficult for someone else. And climate change from this perspective for economists fits in quite well into the framework of externalities, right? So climate change is related to Activities that burn fossil fuels, you know, say driving your car somewhere, taking a flight, maybe producing your, your favorite smartphone or laptop, activities that burn fossil fuels that emit greenhouse gases, right? So these greenhouse gases that stay in the atmosphere for centuries. And what that does is it might make other regions of the same country, perhaps poorer regions, really uninhabitable, or it might make some other country that's halfway around the world really quite difficult to live in. And it might make life difficult for future generations. So so climate change fits in quite well into this framework of externalities and and negative impacts into others that are hard to account. So then turning to Pigouvian taxes, this is really the kind of classic economics way of handling harmful negative externalities. So they're they're named uh, for a a British economist, Arthur Pigou, who and proposed this idea in a book that he published in 1920, about 100 years ago. And the basic idea of Pigouvian taxes is that harmful actions should be taxed to the point that decision makers then account for the full negative impact that they have on others. Right. So that's that's the basic concept of a Pigouvian tax. And you might be wondering, you know, what are some real life examples of this? For example, there there. Are, surcharges or taxes on drivers that take their cars into congested city centers, and by doing so, make traffic worse for others. So Singapore and London are are examples of of places where we see this. And 
So climate change looks to economists like a really standard classic externality problem that calls for a Pigouvian tax. Um, so, so the idea of Pigouvian taxes to climate change uh, is not new either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, there was this paper published by an economist, Alan Keniz, in 1971, you know, only 50 years ago, suggesting that environmental pollution should be dealt with through this kind of carbon tax. If we look at the paper, there's this kind of classic economics quote about carbon taxes. Uh, the author says, acceptably rational pricing of environmental resources is by no means a hopeless task. Exactly the kind of optimistic statement you would expect from an economist. But more broadly, you know, there's quite a lot of consensus in the economics profession that carbon taxes are really a good way to deal with climate change. And that's kind of striking in a profession that really is famous for disagreement, right? Economics is this funny profession where two people can get a Nobel Prize for saying things that are completely the opposite of each other. So we, we, you know, there are carbon taxes in some places. So the EU, uh, California, there, there are some examples of carbon taxes, but it does continue to be the case still that most global emissions are not covered by carbon taxes. Yeah, so I'd like to talk about that. I, I imagine many of our politicians have taken Econ 101. And if there is a consensus in the economics profession, why is it so difficult to get these Pigovian taxes passed? And love, this is a great question, right? So the, the, it's, the, it's the classic question about economic policies, right? So the idea isn't new. It was proposed 100 years ago. Uh, we've been talking about applying this to the environment for 50 years. It seems to be a pretty good policy tool. So why does it seem to be so hard to get these? Mm-hmm. And really the way to understand why this, is, why this is the case is to start with the observation that with most economic policies, really of any significant nature, there are winners and losers. And the potential losers uh, of any sort of policy don't like, the, don't like the idea that this policy will take place. And they, you know, they, they try to fight against having this policy be implemented. And so with climate change and with a policy like a carbon tax, there are three categories of you know, potential losers that are important to keep in mind. So the first of these is you know, there are some firms uh, that, that might be affected and, and, and that we might think would, would do something like this. There are regular old people, you know, consumers like, like, like you and I, like, like all of us. And, and then there's also an international dimension to this. So if we start with the first of these, if, if you just think about companies that produce fossil fuels, it's quite natural to think that carbon taxes might make their activities less profitable. And so they might not like this idea. Um, and you know, indeed, there's been some recent publicity suggesting that some companies that produce fossil fuels have publicly suggested, supported the idea of a carbon tax, but it, it appears privately uh, not, this isn't really something that they support. And the idea is more that there might not be that much action uh, on carbon taxes or climate policy in general. But it's not just companies, right? So th- there, you know, there's also the, just regular people uh, are also uh, potentially affected by carbon taxes. Right? So th- think about people that are dependent on driving to get to work, right? So for their, for, for their livelihood or to get to a grocery store, right? this is their way of life. Um, and you know, a lot of people struggle to make ends meet. And the idea that living expenses for them need to go up even more because of a carbon tax is quite unpopular. Right? And if you think about the yellow vest movement in France, that seems to be kind of what was going on there. But, but this is not only France. This, this is something that, that happens a lot, that you know, th- this affects people's way of life. 
Then there's also this interesting international dimension to this, which is a kind of cross-country dimension. So many people start with the observation that countries that have advanced economies now kind of got to this place by having quite large amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, really starting from the Industrial Revolution. And even now, uh, in, in advanced economies, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas, gas emissions per person tend to be quite high. And there, there are a lot of people in developing economies that have this perspective that you know, maybe they need to have room to emit greenhouse gases so that they can develop too and have better lives for, for them as well. Think of this in the context of why you know, there, the Paris Agreement was this watershed large agreement that was a big deal to have put in place, but you know, it, it doesn't seem to have been all that straightforward to implement. So again, so there, there are losers. Uh, potentially, there are many losers from climate policies, um, and, and they don't like them, so this is why it's hard to implement them. But of course, it's important, it's important to keep in mind that if we continue as normal, if we continue with business as usual, then everyone is a loser in the long term, right? But, but with climate change, we only have one planet. And so we, we do need to do something. So the first question, he's, and this may seem like a really silly question, but you know, I'm not aware of all of the, say, tariffs on goods coming into the United States as a consumer. And it feels like in some ways those are hidden taxes. I wonder, is it possible to, to hide the Pagovian taxes from consumers so you could get them through anyway? We just wouldn't know about it? Yeah, so, so, so that's an interesting question. You know, could, could, we, have a, could we implement this policy you know, in, in, in a sort of shadowy form? Right. Where, where we, we, we get the benefits of a carbon tax, but none of the, none of the costs of having a carbon tax. My, my, my sense is that this would be somewhat challenging to do. And in, in, in thinking about why it's challenging to do this, I think this is also an interesting opportunity to talk about why economists think that taxes and changing prices are so effective in the first place, right? So par part of the reason that a carbon tax would be effective is that it would raise the price of activities that are related to, to consuming fossil fuels and to, to greenhouse gas emissions. It would make these activities more expensive and therefore we would do less of them. Right? So it might make running the air conditioner much more expensive to do than it is now, unless the energy was generated in a renewable way. It might make driving for, uh, you know, for, for extended periods much more expensive than it is now. Right? So this is, a this is a policy that works because people observe the prices uh -huh. and their incentives change. I so I think hiding it is a little bit difficult because you know, if, if you don't do it this way, there, there'll still be some other way in which people observe that their everyday activities, the, the cost of doing them has changed. And that's, that's kind of how the policy works in the first place. I see. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking about Pagovian taxes is that they are somehow designed to take into account, you said, all of the costs that are not internalized yet or not accounted for. That seems like a a really difficult thing. Like I'm thinking about, say, how would a petroleum company be able to calculate all of the millions of externalities? Yeah. So another great question. Um, you know, the, right. So it, it, if I might paraphrase the question, this this sounds great in theory, uh, but maybe it's not so great in practice. 
or just or just like really really difficult. I'm wondering whether or not whether or not there's a formula to figure this out. Uh, you know, again, so, so I, I think this is a great question. It's not as straightforward as it sounds. You know, there, let me kind of remind you of this quote from this paper from Alan Kniez 50 years ago about an, an actually using these carbon taxes or, or or things like carbon taxes for environmental pollution. Acceptably rational pricing of environmental resources is by no means a hopeless task. Right? Not, not the most ringing endorsement of how easy this is that you might be. So I, I, you know, I think you raise a good question. Let, let me, let, you know, in, in unpacking that a little bit, let, let's start with one of the things that you mentioned, which is, you know, how might an oil company know what the right price is? Again, this is one of the strengths of having a carbon tax that, that, that's worth emphasizing, which is that the oil company doesn't need to know what the right price is or the right externality is. You know, the, the way that this policy works is that one price is set, you know, say in, in, in one jurisdiction, and then everyone responds to that. Right? So the, then the oil company can decide based on that price whether the activity still makes sense or not. In terms of thinking about what kind of price would be appropriate, you know, th this is an area in, in which, you know, while, while Dali and I haven't directly worked on this, this is an area in which the IMF has done a lot of work. Um, you know, we, we might recommend some other things later as well, and we're, we're happy to, to, to share some links with you. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that the IMF has called for is that, you know, globally, the kind of price per ton of carbon dioxide should it should be something like $75 per ton. So there are a lot of people that have done this kind of work. There are ways to think about, you know, what, what climate scientists tell us is that we need to get to net zero by, by such and such year. And it's possible with, with kind of modeling to get some sense of what level of carbon pricing that translates to. So while in principle, I think we would agree with you that um, we would agree with this idea that it's complicated. From, from a climate science perspective, I think a lot of people agree with the idea that carbon taxes need to be in place and higher than they are now. Uh, and, and, and then there's even quite a lot of work already in, in terms of thinking about what the right sort of carbon price would be. It's going to be difficult to implement this Pagovian taxes through legislative channels. So now let's turn to the market and, and perhaps market forces can, can help make meaningful progress in addressing climate change. What, what can they? What do you think? Yeah, so this is exactly the subject of this sort of paper, um, of this working paper that, that Dali and I recently published. Um, and, and let me mention here that, you know, that, that with this paper and, and, and this conversation, right, we're, we're talking about our own views and not anyone else at the IMF, mm -hmm. um, including the IMF board, um, right? Uh, but, but in short, what we find with this paper uh, is that, you know, we, we might need to be a little bit skeptical. Uh, the, the short answer seems to be a bit, a bit of a no, uh, that it's it's sort of not obvious that market forces can do a lot do a lot to help us with climate change. So to unpack a little bit what that means, you know, again, exactly as you said, you know, the, the natural sorts of policies that we might think would help, things like carbon taxes, seem quite difficult. But maybe markets can correct themselves. And one version of this that there's been a lot of interest in recently uh, is sustainable finance. Uh, so there's been really dramatic growth in sustainable finance in recent years. Uh, what, one interesting example of this that we came across recently, about half of all new flows to investment funds in Europe last year actually went to sustainable funds. So there's a lot of interest in this area. And what this means increasingly, increasingly sustainable finance has become synonymous with what's called ESG investing. 
um, just to explain what that means a little bit, this refers to incorporating environmental, social, and governance considerations, so ESG considerations in investing. And the kinds of things that sustainable funds do you know, in their investments, they might prioritize firms that get good ESG scores. And, so the, the, and, and this kind of, this sort of sustainable investing has been getting a lot of interest in, re, in recent years. And, and there's a lot of optimism out there that, that this sort of private market effort can help with climate. Conceptually, if we take a little bit of a step back to understand how sustainable finance could help, you know, if, if we think about what the key functions of financial markets are, uh, what financial markets do is that they help channel finance to productive areas. And that this includes directly uh, through market participants making investments, but again, importantly, also by generating prices that help everyone understand where new finance could be the most productive. And so maybe, you know, maybe the idea is maybe what ESG investing could do is shift resources towards, you know, quote unquote, green activities and away from areas that have large carbon footprints. But unfortunately, what our work suggests is that you know, there seems to be a bit of wishful thinking going on in thinking that sustainable finance can do a lot to help with climate change. So why is that? Yeah. Because, because this is something that I mentioned earlier, because carbon dioxide emissions stay in the atmosphere for so long, climate scientists tell us that we don't actually have very long left to do anything about this. And if we keep emitting at the current rate, uh, it, it'll be sort of too late to do anything relatively soon. And, and what we hear is that we'll kind of get to the point of no return in a sense for avoiding some of the really serious costs of climate change quite soon in the next 10 to 15 years which is why you might, might be hearing, you know, this is the decade for action. Relative to this timeline of 10 to 15 years with business as usual, unfortunately, our work suggests that even quite large improvements on the ESG front would delay this timeline only by about one to two years, right? So not the kind of game changer that you would hope in terms of really moving the needle on climate change. And so, for us, it seems like ESG investing is a little bit like a train that's on the wrong track from a client, from the climate perspective. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to go back to, to the paper itself. I'm really interested in how one goes about or how you both went about trying to, to answer the question of whether or not market forces can, can help make meaningful progress in, in addressing climate change. So maybe we could talk a little about the, the, those methods now. So in thinking about this kind of question, we start off from a basic premise of that for sustainable investment to work um, and to help avoid you know, catastrophic climate change, investors would need to be able to reward companies that reduce their emissions through having a better ESG score and to be able to penalize the firms that actually increase their emissions. Our research shows that the main indicator is that um, investors who you know, who are trying to do sustainable investment are using is actually not doing that. So it's not reflecting contributions to global emissions. So researchers um, like us, much like the people um, who are actually trying to do sustainable investor investment, they run into this fundamental issue, which is the data challenge. So how can you or how should firms' contributions to climate change be measured? Um, we take in this paper, we take a, an approach that's motivated by this striking concentration of emissions across firms. 
The work by the Climate Accountability Institute shows that just 100 firms account for 70% of all CO2 emissions since the beginning of the industrial era. So yeah, so who are these 100 firms? These are largely fossil fuel producers. As you know, the main way that greenhouse gas emissions get into the atmosphere is through um, end users using fossil fuel. So the Climate Accountability Institute, what it does is that it estimates the amount of emissions that would be generated when end users use the fossil fuel that these large firms produce and report. So then they use the reporting to estimate the emissions that would be generated. And so we work um, with data on a group of about 50 of these firms where we also have ESG scores. This 50 firms are important set because they account for about a third of global CO2 emissions since 2002. What we use is standard panel data analysis techniques. So we look within, we looked for changes within firms and we also control for, you know, the common factors that might affect emissions either at the country level or over time. Okay. And I'm wondering whether or not you were surprised at all by what you found. So yeah, so what, so when we when we run this analysis, we um, the regression analysis shows that you know again like these scores do not reflect firms' contributions, and so basically the conclusion is sustainable investing is then unlikely to help with climate change. Uh, kind of sort of going back to the analogy that you know ESG is like a train uh, that's on the wrong track. So if people you we're hearing people say you know we need more sustainable investment. But what this paper is saying is that, you know, speeding this particular train is not really going to help. And, you know, despite this huge interest in sustainable finance, we were actually not terribly surprised by these results, unfortunately. Um, one major reason is because data is just hard to come by in this area. So it's not transparent for investors. And there is a lot of room and opportunities for these firms to kind of protect pretend to be good. So they pretend that they care about the climate and doing things as opposed to actually changing their profitable business model. We kind of looked at ESG scores and try to figure out, so what do they reflect? And what we found, what we found is that ESG scores reflect the things that companies say that they do. You know, for example, if a company says, we recognize that climate change has some risks, that firm would get a better ESG score, even though in reality, it has done nothing to you know, limit its emissions. So it's still contributing, but just saying that statement would result in a higher ESG score. I mean, in some ways, it seems like what we need is simply more transparency and better data, and then we could actually get an accurate score. So I completely agree with more transparency. I think that the idea is that if ESG scores are not reflective of firms' contribution, then you have this room for, you know, what Divya said, like greenwashing. But what if you, instead of ESG, you have a measure that's directly capturing firms' contributions, then perhaps then, if you have, you know, yeah, if you have that transparency, if you have a measure that directly captures that, and you condition your sustainable investment on that measure, then there's maybe, maybe things will be different. But right now, ESG is what's, what everybody's talking about in the market and like this kind of research helps makes it clear that if we continue with this kind of measure we are allowing room for for just greenwashing basically um, without that being reflected in limiting global emissions 
and, and forgive me for not really understanding how the scores or the data is compiled, but I imagine, couldn't you have sort of a, either a government regulator or something like a credit rating agency, which could assign these scores and not have to depend on what the firms are reporting? I think, yeah, this, so this is very interesting. I think there is a lot of effort and a lot of calls for policymakers to do have something where like, instead of this, um, instead of all the data out there being dependent on a voluntary disclosure, instead of that, if you do have some sort of um, a unified set of rules for how firms should report their emissions, then that might be a great idea to, in order to, you know, bring better and transparent information to investors and policymakers alike. And I think, yeah, I think that's also one way to go. Right now, everything that's out there is, or for the most part, it's based on voluntary disclosure. And I think in our paper, the one of the main like great things about this is that we are able to avoid using or depending in our analysis on voluntary disclosure because we're using data that these companies report on how much they produce you know so that's that's not them estimating their emissions it's not what they say we're we actually get to see their actual emissions and then compare that to the ESG information that the market participants are using is it your sense and i'm just trying to remain optimistic here is it your sense that in general markets become more transparent over time. And can, can, I guess I'm asking is, can we expect this data to look better in say five years, more accurate? Yeah, no, so so yeah, no, we wanna, we definitely wanna end on a positive note that, you know, economics studies all kinds of behaviors and there is a large scope for economists to help shape collective solutions to this kind of big collective social problems. This kind of research highlights, like it's when in, when we're facing this climate crisis, uh, it's equally important that we identify what works and also what doesn't. So now we've identified that there is this market mechanism that's out there that's not really effective. That is actually great because then we get to save time and resources. And then policymakers, like hopefully this kind of research would help steer the wheel towards solutions that would actually work in cutting global emissions and keeping us within safe degrees of warming. I think that through this kind of research, then once it gets out there that this measure is not intending is not having its intended effect then perhaps you will start hearing more and more investors who are looking for better measures you will start hearing more and more calls for policymakers to do what you're suggesting you know better disclosure um having yeah having more transparency and i think that through that sure like yeah the with the right set of rules companies will abide and then you can eventually reach a, a solution for this. Okay, thank you very much. And so I want to end by asking you you both if you could recommend some books or some articles for, for either teachers or for students of economics to read on this topic. Yes, uh, yes. So the IMF's proposal for a global carbon price floor, which you can find at imf.org, that's very interesting. And you can also find a bunch of other notes on this topic that I think your readers would like. Um, and also for those who are listening and interested in the broader question of whether, you know, it, it falls to, or it comes to the firms, um, is it, is it their role to help help us in solving climate change or should firms just be 
you know, pursuing profits. Uh, for, the, for those thinking of that, um, I recommend the volume of short articles that's edited by Louise Ingalis. It's titled Milton Friedman, 50 Years Later.